Into the oh, I didn't even know you were recording it. No, no. I said it's it should be Russian roulette podcasting because one of these folks walking around is a loaded chamber, and I'm hoping not to find the loaded chamber. And I said if someone takes a swing at him, I've got his back as long as he gives me a minute to put my computer down, close it, shut it down. So. We're going to walk really fast because I, I'm going to ambush a guy who I tried interviewing two years ago and a year ago, and I keep missing him. And we're running to catch up, and there's foot traffic, and walking through cameras. Sorry, he walked through the camera. I didn't do that. And we are here live at the GNU Northeast Linux Fest with Mr. John Mad Dog Hall. Hi, guys. Yeah, I can see that. We, we just snuck out behind it. They all heard us all do that. How are you doing this year? I'm doing fine. I just got down here from my house. I had to get up at 4 o'clock this morning because I was doing a proposal for somebody. So, And then I had to finish my talk, which I still have a few minutes left to do. So uh, maybe you guys would, un, you know, I'll, I'll talk with you a little bit, but then I have to find some. Bill, I told you he looked busy. We'll come get you later. Thank you, and I'm sorry. No, no, it's okay. I have a few minutes. So if you want to do something now, it would be better than uh, you, you, you know. Oh, your phone's ringing. Okay. Not anymore. <laughs> So what, you, what would you guys like to talk about? Uh, well, I wanted to interview you two years ago and then a year ago, and I was just, ne- just never able to catch up with you. Not your fault at all. And I felt so bad about it, and uh, I, just, I just wanted to give you the time that, to, to say what you would like to say to the Hacker Public Radio audience because uh, I'm just a big fan. Boy, that, now you're putting me on the spot because I don't know what to say. But are you going to be here tomorrow? Uh, I should be here tomorrow, yes. Okay, well, tomorrow I'll have much more time and we can sit down. I'm going to try and get down here a little bit earlier than today. And then afterwards, uh, there might be some time for beer. Nice. Well, if if, uh, NY Bill, the hero of the day, shows up with his laptop and this awesome 1980s microphone, we will do that. Oh, okay. So it's an if. Um, Let's let's, let's go someplace where I can sit down and we can have a better talk. Right on. I'll think about what I'm just going to say. You guys see the kind of thing you're missing? John Mad Dog Hall sitting you down for a talk? I should be saying, uh, sorry, sorry, but Pokey's coming at you with a microphone. This is We. Yep, there's a bench right over there. Cool. Thank, good, good eye, Bill. Oh, it's a nice quiet corner, too. Oh, you know what? You guys sit, and I, that way I can aim the mic at both of you. If anybody. <laughs> I know. I, I felt really bad. I, I have not seen you yet while I had a mic in my hand, and I felt like such a jerk for not finding you in time two years in a row. Yeah, it'll be hard if I can't see. 
Hey, everybody. It's Pokey and NY Bill back at the Northeast GNU Linux Fest again. And we're now sitting down with uh, John Mad Dog Hall like gentlemen instead of like jerks approaching somebody in a hallway. And, and NY Bill was not the jerk. I dragged him along. <laughs> uh, tethered to you. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Mr. Hall, how are you? I'm fine. I just got here at the fest and got logged in and, and you know, registered and everything, so I'm fine. Awesome. And um, you've been here, this is your third year at the fest as well. I, I imagine that means you like it. I do. And I think that Jonathan's doing a good job of growing the fest. And, uh, you know, and, and I'm really amazed at the type of stuff he can do. And, um, and you've been, uh, now your keynote speaker, were your keynote speaker last year and this year or all three or i don't think i was a keynote speaker last year because um and even this year i was i was lucky to get a keynote spot because uh i i didn't know i was going to actually be able to be here until the last minute okay cool and um without spilling too much for people who didn't bother to come down to see it what's your keynote on well i'm they're going to hate themselves because my keynote this year is about how to make money with free hardware and free software or I should say open hardware and free software, because hardware is, is truly difficult to make absolutely free, as in gratis. Um, but it is free as in freedom, and I think that's important. Uh, yes, it absolutely is. Um, and, and you've been actually working at this for a very long time, and you've been, uh, I want to say, sort of shepherding the community in the right direction for a very long time. When did you start working uh, with either free software or open hardware? Well, actually, I started working with free software and open hardware in 1969 because back in those days, when somebody, when you got a computer product, you got it in source code. Uh, There wasn't enough of any one type of computer to justify making a binary-only distribution and selling it. There were no computer stores because if there had been a computer store, you would need an 18-wheel tractor-trailer truck and you would need uh, three-phase power and a 20-ton air conditioner. I mean, here's a perfect example. If people had come down here, they would have seen the Mark I computer over there with its drive shaft and its its one-third of a second cycle time. Uh, displayed here in the building, which I thought was very amazing. And I'm a little upset at Harvard that there's not a single picture of Grace Mary Hopper there, who was the first programmer of the of the Mark I. Um, Howard Aiken was brilliant in creating it, but he knew nothing about ballistics. Uh, that's what uh, a lot of it was programmed to do. So um, Grace Mary Hopper had to come up from Princeton and program the machine to do ballistics. You know, you planted a seed in my mind last year when we were talking at the bar and I uh, at the after party anyway and you you kind of uh, without even trying convinced me that no matter what happens in computing everything's end goal is always going to be funded by military and there's 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 always an end goal and we might not know what that is but if we're keyed into the fact that the first computers were ballistic computers it kind of gives you an idea of where things might go well actually the very first automated calculating machines was charles babbage and his was actually intended to print books accurately uh, books filled with sines cosines tangents you know mathematical table books when i was in college 
starting in 1968, every student had to buy the CRC Chemical Rubber Company book of ta- mathematical tables. And okay. that, with your slide rule, uh, allowed you to do the exams and stuff like that. Um, those books, what, what, what Charles Babbage found out, with those books, when they were calculated by hand and then set by hand and printed by, uh, basically by hand, there would be mistakes in it. And he was comparing one, one book with one set of tables with another book and the same set of tables, and they had different numbers. And this really upset him because he said, well, what happens if an engineer depends on this and is going to build a building or is going to build a bridge? I mean, he could get a wrong answer and the whole thing could collapse. Well, this is what happened with that NASA crash where somebody was using metric and somebody was using a standard and they didn't, they didn't make the, the calculations correct. And it wasn't a big deviation, but when you multiply it by the kind of distances experienced in space, that's exactly what happens. That, so Babbage knew that lesson back then. I can, I can imagine that would be that difficult. Sorry to interject. Yeah, well, unfortunately, he was never able to complete his machine, um, but the, the theory behind it and everything still, still went on. And... It was uh, about two years ago that they actually took his plans and built his machine, finished his machine, and it actually works. And there's two of them now. Uh, one of them is out at the Computer Museum in, in California. But so, so the earliest uh, computing engines were not for necessarily for war, for military. And I don't think that, you know, it's... it's, it's one of, the, one of the things about free software, and this happened in the early days of Linux, is people said, well, I don't want people using the software that I write for free and give away for free to make money. And they were upset that people were going to make money off of Linux. And I said, well, you know, if, if you if, number one, if you take that philosophy, then free software is going to move forward slowly like a glacier, and it's not going to move forward fast. You can have all sorts of people going to be fighting you. But the second thing is we, what we were finding was that other people said, well, I don't want my software used by banks because I don't like banks. And some people said, I don't want my software used by uh, the military because I don't like the military. I don't want to use it by the government because I don't trust government. And eventually it comes down to your software is not used by anybody. And that's one of the reasons why in the, in the laws of the GPL, it says the software can be used for any reason. You do not create morality by limiting the use of a tool. Amen. And I think that that could be applied to a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, morality should be taught to people and not legislated to people, okay? I mean, people should do, should do moral things because they're the right thing to do, not because there's a law that makes them do it. I agree. And if you're in a society that would make those laws, you would, you would hope that... Uh, you know, there would be social repercussions for choosing immorality and that you wouldn't need legal repercussions for, for, you know, trying to legislate immorality. Well, I I think that there are uh, social implications and social um, things that, you know, direct people to being moral. Um, Maybe we need to emphasize them more. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, I'm agreeing over here, but you can't hear. It's a directional mic. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really nice mic, but I'm not fast enough to swing it. Um, oh, great. Uh, so, in case, going back to my talk about how to make money with free software and open hardware, um, I've also been working on this project for the past seven years called Project Kawa. 
And Project Kawa is a project to create jobs. And we create jobs by making it very easy for people to be able to sell services based on free software and open hardware. And because we keep, because we're using open hardware and because we're using free software, that basically this can scale very rapidly. And that uh, we, we believe that uh, where we're starting the project, which is down in Brazil, and the economics work out very well in Brazil, that we'd be able to create between one to two million new high-tech jobs in Brazil and another three to four million new high-tech jobs in the rest of Latin America. And if it works out well, then there's no reason why it can't work at least some places. And some of the technologies could be used in the United States or in Western Europe and stuff like that. So um, the reason it works so well in Brazil and Latin America is because of the economic structure of the countries and the density of their cities. Their cities are very dense. And in the United States, we tend to be more spread out. But there's really no reason why Project Cala couldn't work in inner-city Manhattan, inner-city Detroit, um, inner-city Los Angeles, and stuff like that. Excellent, excellent, excellent. So uh, you, I was just about to ask a devil's advocate question, but you, you already just answered it. And the question was going to be, what would you say to people who were, uh, for American people who would say that you're going somewhere else and creating jobs somewhere else? But obviously the answer is you're creating a model that anybody can use. That's exactly right. And, and I am very much of the philosophy of creating local jobs. I want to see create local jobs. I also want to create local support. Now, when I started in computers in 1969, most of the people working on them either had a master's degree or a Ph.D. in computer science. And what happens with that is that if you have a problem, you go and you ask the person at the desk next to you what, you know, what, the, what the answer is, and they look at it with you and they work it out. And if you can't figure it out, you ask the person on the other side you know, what the question is. But then what happened was that type of support got moved downstairs to the computer center. And then after a while, it got moved out to the hardware and software vendors who are creating your hardware and software. And then it got moved to China and India and West Texas. And you can't understand any one of them, okay? And at the same time, these two guys named Bill Gates and Steve Jobs went and... went and put a mainframe on everybody's desk and said, good luck, sucker. And so what was happening was you were, you were getting people who did not have the, you know, the training in computer science to understand what computers could do, now having this thing set on their desk, and at, this, and at the same time you're moving the support further and further away. So let me give you a, a real good calculation of what that really means. Let's say the average person over a month's period of time wastes five dollars of their time every day taking care of the computer. Now I'm not talking about people in large corporations where they have systems administrators and stuff like that, but I'm talking more about small to medium business where typically people have a VAR or somebody like that who comes in and, and, and takes care of the computer systems. Five bucks a day to take care of it. Most people spend more than five bucks in time booting their Windows machine. Well, I mean, I, I was being, I was being um, conservative. conservative, very conservative, okay? Well, there's 1.5 billion desktop computers in the world. And so that means we're wasting as a society $7.5 billion every day. That's almost enough to fund a small war in Iraq, okay? And um, 
and, and I'm not saying that Pachacawa could eliminate all of that, but let's say that we could reduce, reduce it by $2 per day per person and that we could actually use, and, and, and more than that, we could actually make computers fun to use again. You know, the people around here are kind of strange. Most of them actually like working with computers, but the average person on the street, they hate working with computers. They, 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 dis, they, don't, they dislike working with computers, and the only reason they do is because that's what they, that's what they have to do to do their job. This this reminds me, this is very funny, it reminds me of a conversation I had with my son last night. And he said when his friends see Linux on his computers, they don't know what it is. And in trying to explain it, what he basically was saying is Linux is something that makes this work like a computer, not like Microsoft or Apple. Yeah, and and that, that's, that's true no, that no matter what happens, okay? I mean, so... I've been in the industry since 1969, and I can honestly say that probably the crown time of computing was with something we called time sharing, where you had all of your data and all of your programs in one place, and there was this group of people that took care of it, and you didn't have to worry about backups, and you didn't have to worry about spam, and you didn't have to worry about viruses. They did it, and all you had to do was turn on your little terminal in the morning, log in, and do your work, okay, whatever it was. And these days, for a lot of people, that's doing a spreadsheet, that's browsing, that, you know, or whatever they do every day, they're, they're used to that. It's the things they do every once in a while that they do very poorly. So every once in a while, they have to install new software. Every once in a while, they have to do backups. Every once in a while, they have to do all this stuff. That's what they do very poorly, and that's what they hate, and that's what they screw up. You're, you're predicting that I'm very bad at clipping my lawn. Yes, you probably are, and and and, and, and it's, it's a lot of other. It's, it's a lot of things. It doesn't normally fit into your normal schedule, so you have to take time out for it, and uh, it's and it's something you, you're not quite used to, and you have to look around for the things that you did it with the last time because they're spread out to you after your garage or something like that, and uh, so these are things. These are the reasons why a lot of people really hate computers. Is because they're not. They're, every once in a while, they're asked to do something which is not what they do every day, and they, they forget how to do it. And I remember my, my, my father could send email, and my father could browse the web, but for everything else, he had this book where he wrote down every single step because he couldn't my, remember it from time to time. My best friend does the exact same thing. Well, I, I, I even had a systems administrator many years ago, and I, I think you wouldn't mind if I, if I told this little story, but he also, he was trained as an electrical engineer, not a computer scientist, and a very smart guy. But when he was, he, he was forced into being a Unix systems administrator in the early days of Unix, and he wrote down every single step to do something. So I came along, and I was trained in computer science, and... I was new to Unix, and I would follow his steps step by step until one day I realized that you do step three. Step four really didn't do anything. Step five actually undid step three, so you could immediately go into step six. And I said, hmm, and I went from three to six, and he goes, ah, what are you doing, what are you doing? I says, well, Bob, you know, it does the same thing. It's just you don't have to do this intermediate stuff because one step undoes the other one. He looks at me. He closed up his book. He said, you don't need me anymore. He says, you are, you're, you're past me. You're already past me. Oh, nice, nice story. Um, I want to thank you personally uh, for giving me some inspiration. A couple of talks that you've done um, 
I, one, I believe it was called uh, something with logs in the title. Who has the logs and explaining how logs are used, uh, how co- big companies use logs to track you down, not to track you down, but to, to use that aggregated data to make money and, and why those logs are valuable and why you should be running your own personal services, your personal, I don't, I will not use the word cloud, but that's, and that inspired me to start doing some of my own server administration, whereas before I was just a dumb desktop user, even a dumb Linux desktop user, just using the Linux desktop. And I have grown more because of that particular talk than probably any other single thing. Yeah, I, I when you first started saying logs, it sounded like more of a systems administration type of talk than I would normally give. But when you started to get into the privacy issue, yes, I could probably have told you that because I am very much uh, aware of that. And particularly when we are when, when when you are outside of the United States, so when I go down to Brazil and I start talking to them, they're very conscious of the fact that when they use certain cloud services, that they're not only under the laws of Brazil, but they're under the laws of this other country that they can't vote for, right? They can't vote for the president. They can't vote for the Congress. They can't make the laws. They have no effect on the laws, and yet they are still under the effect of that. Not to mention this country has a, a pretty hefty track record of extradition. Um, well, whatever <laughs> it is, uh, there's, you know, they, they, they want it underneath of their laws, and this is where I have a real hard problem with some of these laws that our our government is coming up with, like SOPA and stuff like that. Because can can we uh, just so we can continue this conversation civilly? Can we agree to call them politicians because they haven't been a government in a long time? Whatever. Okay. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I, I, I understand that. So I um, I I don't know. I just I just I just I, I want. The government to un- what the politicians to understand <laughs> that th- you do not you do not sue the telephone company because somebody is you know transferring electrical bits over their wires. Likewise, you don't go after ISPs because these are flowing over their wires, you know, or their pipes, as as some of our, co- uh, our congressmen call them. But, you know, the, the people that you have to go after are the people that are producing the stuff that's bad and the people that are consuming it. And if one of those happen to be in your country, fine, go after them. But when the stuff is flowing through the pipes, that's not the place you should be going after. Calling them pipes is so much fun. But it's to them, though, they are pipes, and it's so hard to find the source of the pipe. How do we do that? That's just the point. You 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 have to track down the source of the pipe. That's fine. I mean, and then you have to you have to go after with certain laws. Like, you have reasonable suspicion that this person's doing something. You have reasonable suspicion that they are consuming something. It's just like the the same type of laws that we in the United States should have when somebody comes into our house looking for something. Okay, they have to have a subpoena which says that they had to convince a judge that they have reasonable suspicion that you're breaking the law. And so if they have that type of reasonable suspicion and they get a judge to approve that type of thing, that's fine as long as it's on our soil. you know. But when it's on somebody else's soil, maybe that country doesn't have any rules against that. Yeah, uh, that is true. Um, and I'm kind of lost for a follow-up question. <laughs> Can you bring that back to to uh, w- your work in South America? 
Well, I mean, Project Kawa, I mean, like as I said, Project Kawa's main function is to create jobs. And we've been working on this for seven years. And we've had various uh, renditions of Project Kawa. Uh, one was very, very um, aggressive, let's put it that way, and required people to get server systems who would put in the basement of buildings and then have thin clients throughout. You would have basically an LTSP style setup. Uh, which reduced the amount of maintenance and stuff. And it's Linux terminal server project. If if we have anybody who doesn't know, and and you know, but that was very expensive and very hard to finance. So we backed off of that to a simpler model, which was to create some media centers that people could go out and sell and maintain and and do that as a business. But that also required quite a bit of financing. So now we've come up with a very simple model of taking a Raspberry Pi and sticking on the back of a TV set or or LCD monitor and giving them basically a thin client slash media center slash complete com- computer system with operating system and whole bunches of sof- software. And if they want to, they could also hook up and have cloud services. All for the purchase of a $35 computer and attachment to the Internet. Nice. And uh, what's the OS running on the Raspberry Pi for this uh, you could guess what the what the operating system might be. Which which distribution is going to be? We're not quite sure yet. But I can tell you one thing: we're not going to create another one. Okay. <laughs> nice. No more. I'm I'm not going to be guilty of creating yet another Linux distribution. So, no. We, we, what we've done is we, I had a revelation one night, and the revelation was if I could sit at a console and take a standard Linux distribution and just by typing in characters. Load it, configure it, build it, pull stuff across the internet, and do stuff like that. You could script it. I could script it, and better yet, most of them have a, a startup script of some type. You know, whether it's Jumpstart or, or, or whatever, that you can do all or, or Fay is you know fully installed. Any fully automated installation, okay. you could do all those, and it's just a, a much smaller file that you have to worry about, and you don't have to worry about a lot of testing. You don't have to worry about a bunch of stuff. Well, you have to test it, of course, but you don't have to worry about testing a distribution. Right, or testing different pro- programs. You just have one program for its particular requirements. Exactly. And, you know, so I said, whoo, we could do that, and that just cut like a year of development off of the, off of the, uh, the project, so... Excellent, excellent. What, what um, are you looking at? Any particular distributions? Are you considering any right now? Are you at that point? I don't want to say anything because as soon as I do, I'm going to have ten thousand distribution people coming to me and say, "Why did you pick my distribution?" So I'm see say anything right now. See, folks. Not only is he smarter than me, he's wiser also. <laughs> well, okay. So, so now we have the difference between intelligence and knowledge and wisdom and, and all the rest of that crap and and. I think you're very intelligent and, and, and stuff, but I have Aww. I have been around for 43 years, and I've seen all this stuff happen. I just don't want it to happen again. So. Right, right, right. Bill, Bill I, keep pull, I keep talking, and Bill's over here. I know he's dying to say something. No, I'm just, I keep saying a bunch of yeses, but they don't get into the mic, but that's okay. I'm, I'm, <laughs> you're, doing, you're doing a good job. Oh, thanks. Um, yeah, it's just it's amazing to sit and talk with you. It's amazing the things that you've done. It's I mean, in general, it's incredible to walk into one reasonable, intelligent person in a day. It, does, it just normally does not happen. So it's, it's really cool to get to sit down and, and talk with one who, who's, you know, guaranteed. <laughs> so thank you. Well, thank you very much. And I just want to say that I, 
I recently had a great honor, and it was to go over and speak at the University of Cambridge in England. I was on my way back from a show at Seabit in Hanover, and I got to go to the same university that Maurice Wilkes, Dr. Maurice Wilkes, Sir Maurice Wilkes, um, was the head of the EDZAC project, the first computer that could store its own uh, program in its own memory. Oh, okay. Uh, Dr. Wilkes was also the person who's credited with inventing microcode for CPUs. He was also credited with creating subroutine, <coughs> the first subroutine libraries and uh, just an amazing man. And I was lucky enough to have met him a couple times and actually gone to dinner with him a couple times and stuff like that. But to be at the same university giving a talk about free and open source software, that's also the university that did uh, all of the early work on Zen as a virtualization technique. And then most recently, they're the ones who came up with the idea for the Raspberry Pi. Nice. Yeah. So that's, I mean, I, I'm not into the Raspberry Pi yet. I'm I'm terribly behind every hardware development that ever happens but i mean i i I know that what you're saying striking a nerve (laughs) with with the listeners and this is fantastic well since i've got the microphone in front of me i just want a put in if you're really into linux then i suggest you make a 35 dollar investment and get a raspberry pi i mean it's just a phenomenal little computer and you can plug it into your hdmi tv set and or or LCD monitor, we can get an adapter. Uh, HDMI goes very nicely to DVI, and you can also. I mean, it's it has a half a gigabyte of memory on it, and a flash card for putting all sorts of different operating systems on. You can put you know Linux on one, you can put BSD on another, Android on a third, and so forth. And just plug that in, and boom, you got that operating system. And after you're finished playing around with it, you know, give it to a kid and, and watch the kid do some amazing things with it. And um, this is what the, the professors at, the, at, at Cambridge wanted to have happen. They were, they were concerned that a lot of kids these days, when they get a computer, whether it be a laptop or a desktop, all they do is play games or maybe do a little bit of HTML. And they said, hey, the, the operating systems that come with most of these do not have compilers. Those are extra. The parents never buy them. The kids are never exposed to them. They can't do shell scripting. Or if they do, it's a very weak form of it. And, you know, they wanted they wanted something so small it could fit in your pocket, so cheap that if you blew it up, nobody would get mad. And it's just, it's just caught the world by storm. I mean, they, they thought they would get make a thousand of them and then maybe ten thousand and by the time they sold the first one they had orders for a hundred thousand and it spent the last ten months with them continuously sold out i mean you go to any place any any store they're always sold out and people have to sit there i mean it's it's, it's even harder to order a raspberry pi than it was to order a google nexus 4 phone okay that hard okay and and i will say also on their behalf that with that kind of a ramp up unexpected ramp up in sales and productivity you would expect far more mistakes than they had and what few mistakes they had they really overcompensated when they when they fixed them oh yeah and and for the and and the interesting thing is i mean you now you have this type of community coming together around the raspberry pi they came around things like the arduino came around uh but it's it's the the thing it reminds me of is the type of community that sprang up in the days of the alpha linux port where 
this this was the first time the Alpha Linux port was the first time that I had experienced this sense of community. The people who were so you know going after one target so strongly. And, and what was what was this? I, I'm not familiar with. Did you say Alpha Linux port or board? I I'm not even sure what, you, what you're. I don't know what this is. Okay, so in 1994, I met Linus Torvalds for the first time, and I saw Linux for the first time. And it was only running on Intel processors at that point. That was, that was Linus's focus, Intel processors. But other people were looking to port it to things like the Spark and stuff like that. But Linus was not. And I took Linus out onto a riverboat down in New Orleans, and we went up and down the riverboat river, drinking this wonderful drink called a hurricane. Which, since St. Patty's Day is tomorrow, I'll tell you about the hurricane. It's, it's a drink that's <laughs> it's so strong that after you've had two of them, you think you've been hit by Katrina. Okay. And I said, Linus, I said, have you ever thought about porting Linux to a 64-bit machine? No, because then you could address sixty-four, you know, four billion times four billion bytes of virtual memory, and also a RISC processor, so that you could get rid of all the Intelisms out of it. You know. Now this is this is exactly what Richard Stallman said when he said, "Why are we working with eight bits and everybody else is jumping to thinking they're jumping to six? Why don't we do thirty-two? <laughs> this is it's brilliant. Why not repeat it?" <laughs> Well, I mean, no, actually, there are reasons for that. This is a much longer discussion. I mean, so so when memory was $128,000 for 64K bytes of memory, when you have, when you have, when you have bandwidths that are 100 or 1,200 bits per second, okay, when you have disks, which are very extremely small by today's standards. I mean, if I, I, the, the first disk I ever programmed on was a five megabyte disk drive. Okay, so and that was that was that was huge. It was you know easily eighteen inches in diameter. My entire life, anytime a new thing came into my house, my mother would say, "I can't believe how small they make these things these days." And that was kind of a mantra at our house. And it's only been very recently, last three or four years, that I look at these things. And, and I, I have that in my mind, but it also occurred to me, I can't believe how cheap they're making them now. But the reason I'm mentioning all of this is because the cost of making that 64-bit computer back when there was 8-bit and 16-bit computers, the cost of making them was so astronomical that nobody could have afforded it except maybe the government. So there wasn't a marketplace for it, okay? All of these things have to go together. There was a balance. There was a balance of... Hey, folks, this is Pokey uh, back at the GNU Northeast Linux Fest. We just had a, a somewhat of a hardware failure with our recording while we are talking with uh, uh, John Mad Dog Hall. I've gone to my backup recorder. This is, I'm sorry for all the handling noise and all the room noise it's going to pick up. Um, and sadly, it's going to cut our conversation short. But it's, it's in a way, it's kind of fortunate because I would talk with Mad Dog until the sun came back up again. <laughs> if I wasn't, if someone didn't stop me, or if some hardware didn't stop me, so um, we'll we're gonna we're gonna uh, uh, the Earth is asking me to let Mr. Hall go, so I'm going to let him finish what what he would like to say and uh, and re- release him and hope he's like a butterfly and returns to the GNU Northeast Linux Fest next year or tomorrow. Um, so basically, what I wanted to say was that you know we had we were talking about why were we doing 
8-bit, 16-bit, 32-bit, you know, and 64-bit. And there's a economic and, and industrial and commercial reason for that. And that was the fact that, you know, memory and circuitry was so expensive back in those days that you had to have a sweet spot, a balance of CPU speed versus memory size versus what? So let's take CPU speed. The Mark I out there had a cycle time of one-third of a second, okay? So it could do one instruction, it could do three instructions every second, all right? And if you then said, okay, I'm going to give you a gigabyte of memory, how long would it take the, the Mark I to address <laughs> every single byte of memory? I'm just even talking, touching it, okay? I'm okay. not talking about doing anything with it or, or, or storing anything back. I'm just saying, oh, you've got some memory out there. Oh, that, uh, just look at it, okay? Okay. So you see the balance A, a jump there. from an 8-bit to a 64-bit is ludicrous, not... Not unimaginative. It's ludicrous. Exactly. Okay. And and you know and and the costs, the transfer speeds, the buses, and all that type of stuff. It was more or less going as fast as it could over all those years. But what was what is true right now is the question of what happens if we try and go from 64-bit address spaces to 128-bit address spaces. 128 bits is such a large number that the question is, on what planet are you going to put the backing store for it okay or what you know what are you going to compute that you really need to have 128 bits of storage for okay okay and and what processor would be able to touch every single byte of that 128 bits of data in the same day <laughs> no <laughs> ever in the same huh? millennia nice okay, okay. So again, there's this balance, and I think that with 64 bits, we actually have gotten to the point where there's, there's going to be a long time. So when we went from 8 to 8 was impossibly small, 16 eh, lasted a little while, PDP-11s and stuff like that lasted a little while, 32 lasted actually a good long time, and there's an argument that 32 bits is big enough for client type of, of computing forever. And then there's 64-bit. Now, the reason of why, we, why would we do 64-bit every place instead of only, you know, is compatibility. It's, uh, it's things like being able to migrate processes from, say, our phone into a server into the cloud and not have to worry about compatibilities and things like that. You know, there are some reasons for doing it. But 128-bit virtual address space? I don't, uh, and and 64 bits is so large that even the fastest processors of today would take a long time to simply touch every byte out there in a 64-bit address space. I mean, it's four billion times four billion. Okay, that's a number. That's a number. It starts with 16. I can tell you that. It would. It would. It would. Then it probably goes times 10. But the power is. I'm gonna leave that up to you. It's enough that you could store 128 bytes of data for every square millimeter on the surface of the Earth and all the oceans. I have been so active on OpenStreetMap lately, we might need that. So just keep that in mind. <laughs> well, on the, other, on the other hand, we're only talking about virtual address space. So for many years, we were able to address huge amounts of data, but with a 32-bit machine. It's just, it's just that... When you pull a certain amount of data into memory, you're limited by the virtual address space, and you then have to do edge type of programming conditions as you go from one virtual address space to another, okay? Whereas a 32-bit virtual address space, a 64-bit virtual address space, whatever. But the point is, if you're processing so much data, and, 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 and this is data that 
you're not doing a lot of processing on the data. You're just touching it. You're just touching it. It takes so long to do that that if you ever do run into the edge of that address, the edge, it's okay. You could take a little bit of time to do that, okay? So the same thing is, is true of sorting and searching techniques. So in, in, in the very small memories of before, right, you had to worry about, okay, I have to worry about garbage collection and, 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 getting, and moving a lot of data around just to get this tiny little bit of extra space left and everything, and I don't want to do garbage. And collisions, collisions happen a lot when you have a very small address space. But when you have a really big one, collisions don't happen that often, okay? In fact, they may never happen. And so you can spend, you can, you can use a garbage collection technique that uses a little bit more time because when you do it, even a little bit, you get back huge areas of now freed up memory, you know. Yeah. So the, the types of algorithms you use in a 64-bit system might be completely different than the ones you would use in a 32-bit system or definitely more in a 16-bit system. Okay. Awesome, awesome. Um, Mad Dog, I'm I'm going to let you go because obviously, you know, we, we you said you had to finish your talk. And I do. I I, re- I really could just sit here with you till the sun went down and came back up again. Um, is it's there always the after party? Did, is there anything you yeah, would like to I close? Think we have a beer. Yes. It, it it's uh, pretend it's on me. It's an open bar. Pretend it's on me. <laughs> it's, is there anything you'd like to close with, or anything that I should have asked you about that I didn't get a chance to? Well, no. It, uh, we're in the process now of finalizing our plans for Project Kawa, and then we're going to be uh, putting it out onto the website. It'll take us probably about another month to do that. But then what we like is if people would like to join in on this, and they, you know, because all of Project Kawa is going to be open, we're going to publish everything on there the software, any types of hardware that we might use will be published and everything. People will be able to, you know, get. They'll be able to buy their hardware from anybody who wants to sell it. And you know. are you looking for volunteers as well? Well, that too. But we're we're looking for ideas. We're looking for people that can, can contribute ideas and stuff to this. Because if we get a large community contributing ideas and, and things, and when you say contributing ideas, do you mean people who can pull off the ideas, or just who can suggest things to people who can pull it off? Both. And 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 we'd like people to be able to say, hey, you know, I'd like to. Pull down. I'd like to buy some of this hardware, buy a Raspberry Pi, you know, get a TV set, put it on there. Say, put it all together. Yeah, this this works really cool. And oh, by the way, I have this particular TV remote control, and and it doesn't work right. So tell us about it. Tell us your remote control doesn't work right, and we'll try and get somebody to fix that. Then your remote control will work right. And you know, and it's you know, it's a whole free software thing. So. We're looking for people who's just, even people say, hey, I'd just like to see this type of feature in it. Because somebody else might say, wow, it's a great idea. And I'll do it. And then it's done. And, you know, we're going to be funneling stuff up upstream to all of the different groups who do this, you know. And we'll be giving them credit for what they're doing, uh, unlike some other people who have used their software and never given them any credit or uh, <laughs> stuff like that, you know. Shock, horror, come on, yeah. say it isn't so. Well, that's one of the reasons why we don't want to create another distribution, okay? We just don't want to, you know, we want the people that are working on that distribution to get the to get the uh, honor and, and, uh, and the respect and the, and, uh, and the visibility that they deserve. See, folks, you really should be here at the GNU Northeast Linux Fest. Um, number one, as as fun as it is listening to this man talk, 
if you were here, you could see his animated facial expressions and everything. And they're just so much fun. But also, if you if you were going to get involved in a free software project, um, these fo- folks like like Mad Dog, this is the giant whose shoulders you're standing upon. And most people never realize quite how high that is. And most people never get a chance to say thank you. And I, I just want to say thank you. Well... So I was over at CBIT, and the Linux Pro Magazine gave a Lifetime Achievement Award to Linus Torvalds, and I accepted it for him. But I also know that if Linus had been there to accept the award, he would say what he always says, that he will take the award in honor of the people that work on the Linux kernel, and that he is just an engineer who is you know, keeping the kernel going and stuff like that, and it's really the community that does it. So I'll reflect that back, what you just said, and and I happen to have been a person who was in a place at a time and saw something and followed it, and it's really the Linux and free software communities and open source communities that uh, deserve all the thanks, and uh, I thank them. I, I think that might be my favorite part about free and open source software is the the great big hearts at at the bottom of it i want to thank you so much for your time mr hall it's been a a tremendous pleasure talking to you uh and to ny bill i want to see i want to say told you so i told you he was worth chasing down (laughs) i I thought we'd say we would say hello in maybe five minutes and you gave us 30 minutes and i I I appreciate it and thank you my pleasure all right folks i don't know if i'm able to top that today but we're still going to talk to people Make sure you see the raspberry pie. Hold on, get it, get it into the mic. It's so directional. Yeah. We've just finished no. up. Oh, oh, sorry. <laughs> I thought you meant before the recording. Uh, before. <laughs> All right. You have been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by a HBR listener like yourself. If you ever considered recording a podcast, then visit our website to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club. HBR is funded by the Binary Revolution at binrev.com. All Binrev projects are proudly sponsored by Lunar Pages. From shared hosting to custom private clouds, go to lunarpages.com for all your hosting needs. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution, share alike, 3.0 license.